0: Welcome to the Virginia Economic Review Podcast. I'm Stephen Moray, President of the Virginia Economic Development Partnership, or VEDP. Today, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with Kevin Scott, who is the Chief Technology Officer and Executive Vice President for Technology and Research at Microsoft. Kevin is the author of Reprogramming the American Dream, From Rural America to Silicon Valley, Making AI Serve Us All which was published in April this year. The book discusses his journey from rural Virginia to the top ranks of leading tech firms, as well as how AI can promote growth across America, including rural communities. Kevin has an absolutely fascinating life story. He's a native of Virginia who grew up in Gladys near Lynchburg. He's held important positions at Google and LinkedIn in addition to Microsoft. He's also one of, I think, a very small number of people in America in the last few decades, who read the World Book Encyclopedia from cover to cover as a a kid. Amazing. (laughs) His wife, Shannon, runs their family foundation, which invests in programs that holistically address the conditions that tend to trap people in poverty cycles. And he's also been the force behind the Behind the Tech podcast. Kevin, as you know, we've never met in person, but I have to say, in reading your book and learning a little bit more about you, I was amazed by how much we have in common. We both were born in 1972, assuming Wikipedia is right for you, we both grew up with humble roots in rural communities, you in rural Virginia, me in rural Mississippi. We both contemplated studying arts and humanities as well as STEM fields. You ended up in computer science. I ended up in mechanical engineering. We both picked those fields in large part over the arts and humanities alternatives because we could sort of envision a more... More predictable career path. When in college, I just laughed at this when I was reading your book. You know, we both tried to bury our rural accents, but they tend to crop up when <laughs> hanging out with friends back home. And I think probably most importantly, considering our conversation today, I think one of your great passions is that we both have a passion for revitalizing and expanding access to the American Dream, especially fulfilling the promise of the American Dream in rural communities in Virginia and beyond. I've enjoyed every Virginia Economic Review podcast, but I have to say I've looked forward to this one more than any other that we've done so far. And just to finish it out, you'll kind of get a chuckle from this. I wanted to make sure I finished the book before we did our interview. So I was reading the last couple chapters as I was working out last night, and I got to the part where you talked about one of your favorite piano pieces being Chopin's G minor ballade, opus 23, number one, performed by Murray Pariah. I actually read the last chapter of the book while listening to that piece performed by him. So uh, I feel like I'm sort of somewhat immersed in your passions and your interests and just thrilled that you can join us today for this podcast.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really honored to be on the podcast and looking forward to the conversation.
0: Absolutely. Well, tell us a little bit about your journey from rural Virginia into the tech world. I mean, obviously, you lay this out in your book, but for our readers, how did a kid from outside of Lynchburg, from Campbell County, end up as the CTO of Microsoft?
1: You know, it still seems like a very improbable journey, even though every step along the path seemed to make sense to me at the time. So like you already mentioned, I was born and raised in rural central Virginia in this tiny little town called Gladys in Campbell County, which is nearest big town to Gladys is Lynchburg. Yeah, my my family was my, my dad, my grandfather, my great-grandfather were all in construction on my father's side. And on my mother's side, my grandfather had been and a farmer until a farming accident disrupted that career path for him, and he became an appliance repairman and ran his own business in this tiny little town called Brook Neal that is adjacent to Gladys. I was, I guess, sort of lucky to be born with this intense curiosity about The world and how things work, and I write a little bit about this in the book. If such things are inherited, I would have inherited it from many members of my family, but probably most notably my uh, grandfather Shorty Tibbs, who was a tinkerer his entire life. So he he had sympathy for all of the things that I took apart and only occasionally was able to successfully reassemble when I was a tiny little kid versus my mother who was chagrined (laughs) most of the time by all of the damage I was doing to her household. But, you know, I, I had this curiosity and then I had parents who encouraged and appreciated the curiosity, even though they didn't understand all of the things that I was investigating or curious about at any point in time, whenever they could tried to help. And so I think I was extraordinarily lucky to have that. I think my community in Gladys, like many of these communities across the country, was fairly tight-knit in in the sense that everyone, I think, felt a shared sense of responsibility in the life and livelihood of the folks around them. And so I, I just felt incredibly supportive. And when the moments came that I had to do uncomfortable things to pursue the curiosity that I had, I had a group of people, both family and friends and community who were there supporting me. We should never take that sort of support for granted. I think it's just really scary sometimes taking these big risks that you have to take to figure out whether or not this thing that you're interested in is interesting to other people or that it's going to be useful or that there's an opportunity there. And when you're confronting one of those opportunities and all you have are your own anxieties and fear and no one to support you, it's easiest to just shy away from them. And so I'm just eternally grateful to all of the people in my family who were there to support all of the, you know, sort of, what to them must have seen sort of silly and risky and crazy things that I wanted to do. But yeah, I mean, like to get back to my career path, I grew up in Campbell County. I went to college at Lynchburg College, which has since changed its name to Lynchburg University, which is in the nearest town over. Neither my mom nor my father went to college. My dad got drafted to go to Vietnam, like right out of high school. And my mom went to get a certificate at a business school and then became a bank teller when she graduated. And I was super, super, super fortunate to become a Teenager, right around the time that the personal computing revolution was happening. And so, you know, by the time I was 10, 11, 12 years old. There were computers on the shelves of the local department stores that you could tinker around with when your parents were there shopping. And the very first video game consoles had started to show up all over the place in convenience stores and grocery stores and all of the places where you know they eventually made their way. And I was just fascinated by them. And so that led to me getting a degree in computer science. And then I, I worked for a little while in Lynchburg trying to save up enough money where I could afford to go to graduate school. Uh, I went to grad school at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Then I went to work on a PhD that I, much to my dear PhD advisor's (laughs) chagrin, I never finished because I left to start a job at Google right before I finished the very last chapters of my dissertation. And like Jack, uh, Jack Davidson is my PhD advisor. He's one of my very, very good friends. I don't feel bad that I went to Google and instead of writing those last two chapters of my (laughs) dissertation. But I do feel bad that I didn't finish that PhD for Jack.
0: (laughs) It's a a great story about how it all came together. You started on the Radio Shack Coco 2, right? And I think for me, there was the Commodore 64, which came out, I think, in a similar time frame. Yeah. One of the themes that you talk about in your book, Kevin, has to do with this sort of widespread fear that many have in the United States of artificial intelligence, you know, killing jobs. Various studies have cited, you know, X percent of jobs could go away within 10 or 20 years as a result of AI. You have a more hopeful outlook, I think, on that potential impact. Can you just kind of elaborate a little bit on how you think AI could evolve in a way that could actually be enabling to job growth, enabling to innovation and creativity in the United States?
1: Almost any technology that we've ever invented that ends up having major impact and you know, becoming ubiquitous in our lives starts off seeming a little bit scary, and, and in many cases, like there, there is like specific anxiety around technologies causing disruptions in jobs. My favorite example is the steam engine, which in the late 18th century was the first real mechanical substitute for human labor. And when steam engines were deployed in factories and became a part of the means of production, it radically transformed the economy. It did a ton of good, but it was disruptive for jobs. In the early days of the technology, the benefits accrued to society because they had, you know, more ubiquitous, cheap manufactured goods than they had before. And the benefits also accrued to folks with capital and folks with expertise. So if you had enough money, you could invest in these expensive steam engines and Build business concerns around them, and if you were an expert, you could earn you know really good living and create profitable businesses for yourself by you know designing and operating these machines as a means of production. And we now know from history the stories of the Luddites who were so incensed and angry and concerned about the development of the technology that they tried to sabotage the machines to save their own jobs. But we don't now today talk about engines and mechanical motors as things that are disrupting jobs. My colleague Brad Smith wrote a book that was published late last year that had an interesting anecdote about how firefighters were worried about their jobs when the mechanism of firefighting in New York City went from fire carriages drawn by horses to ones powered by internal combustion engines and what was going to happen you know, th- there's very frequently like this very real and very important anxiety about what a technology is going to do to society when it starts having a big impact. But story over time is usually a good one, like because, yeah, you know, this is another thing that I write about in the book. We are constantly, as a society, faced with these problems that on the surface look like zero sum games. And for those who like, I've never heard of a zero-sum game or like looked at game theory. A zero-sum game is one where there are winners and losers. There's sort of a finite amount of something that you're buying over, and the game is about dividing who has what. You can look at some of the challenges today that we even face in healthcare and climate change that when we frame them as zero-sum problems, like they look very, very challenging to solve. But if you can turn a zero-sum game into a non-zero-sum one where you don't have the same constraints, where you can also think about expanding resources, creating abundance that didn't exist before, relaxing constraints, then you can start to like have a lot more flexibility in how you solve problems. And like the history of technology is about turning zero-sum games into non zero-someones, like creating abundance. The question I think with AI is, you know, what does some of this transition look like as AI becomes more powerful? And I think Yeah, what we're already seeing is some of those predictions that were made a few years ago that were very dire in the sense that so many jobs were going to get disrupted so quickly. I don't think that the forecasts were as accurate as we thought they were going to be. It turns out that, and I write about this in the book, that deploying ai is harder than we think yeah like a good example of this is uh, level 5 autonomous vehicles so like vehicles that can just sort of fully drive themselves under any set of circumstances with no human intervention that is a really really challenging problem to solve and so if you had based your forecast on job disruption around the you know the quick arrival of level 5 autonomy like the you know, sort of the consequences for jobs, I think, are less severe than people thought. And in other cases, like, I think, you know, we're we're sort of seeing more job displacement than you might have anticipated by things that aren't even AI, like in retail, for instance, and like, if anything, COVID is going to, Accelerate some of these things. You know, for instance, it probably is the case either from cashierless checkout systems that let you uh, order goods and services on your phone and then either have them delivered or you know available for you to go pick up, or you know just sort of pure e-commerce, like you're just sort of buying stuff online from a place that doesn't even have physical retail outlets. You know, I think it puts a lot of pressure on some of the jobs that are in retail, and like that's not even. A AI AI is more so than any previous technology I think has all of the conditions going for it in terms of accessibility where a huge number of people are going to be able to pick up these tools and to use them to create new businesses which will have benefits not just for the business creators but for folks in their communities, employees, and the people who are benefiting from the things that they create. I think it is a really, really exciting time and You know, one of the things that I want to be able to do in the role that I'm playing right now is to try to make sure that these sophisticated technologies are packaged as platforms where other people can use them, because I don't think we're going to get the full benefit from them if just a small number of people in very big tech companies that sit in coastal uh, innovation centers are the ones who have to have all of the imagination for what good the technology can do.
0: One of the stories you told in the book that really stuck with me sort of started with talking about your great-grandmother who was born in 1898 and lived to 1997. And in her life, she saw three big technological changes, ubiquitous electricity, ubiquitous refrigeration, and television. And you sort of use those as a way to talk about what it means to be kind of a platform technology. And then most significantly, what does it mean to be a platform technology with self-reinforcing feedback loops? You talked about AI as that type of technology, which has the you know, potential yes. to really generate profound sort of economic transformations across multiple industry sectors. Can you just kind of elaborate a little bit on what you mean by that sort of phrase, as well as why AI sort of fits in that category?
1: If you think about electricity, which is a platform technology that has these self-reinforcing feedback loops, it really may have been the most important technological development of the 20th century. So it's sort of obvious, like why it's a platform. So it, as soon as you have have ubiquitous electricity available, Like everything uses it. Everything can benefit from electrification and it even allows the creation of other platforms. You can't have ubiquitous refrigeration, for instance, if you don't have electricity to power the the compressors and the motors and the thermodynamic cycle of modern refrigeration. The technologies that you build on top of electricity improve our ability to produce more energy. After the development of electric power distribution and its ubiquitous availability, we eventually invented digital computing. And digital computing as a platform lets us do things like design solar panels and better electric power generation facilities. It allows us to manage the load that are on the electric power grid to better match consumption to production. Or production to consumption. And so like that's what I mean by these sort of self-reinforcing feedback loops. So the availability of the technology makes the technology itself better. I would most encourage people to do is don't think about AI as one thing. It's not commander data from Star Trek. It's not the Terminator from you know the Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. It's not a singular thing. AI is really a very broad collection of technologies that are just being used already to power things in every part of our lives. And it has this self-reinforcing feedback loop in that the more that we use AI, the better AI becomes because AI benefits from having large amounts of data and large amounts of sort of interactions where I can learn from those data and interactions to do more powerful things. I'll be dead before we know whether this is true or not. I think AI is going to turn out to be the 21st century's equivalent of electricity. It will be the most important platform technology that we invent this century.
0: To me, the third kind of big focus of the book and the one about which I think we share the most passion is the potential for AI to be a key tool to enable the kind of revitalization and economic opportunity in rural America. You talk a good bit in the book about that. I'd love if you could sort of lay out for our listeners kind of what you see as the key sort of foundational elements of a rural growth agenda for not just rural Virginia, but for America as well and where AI could play into that.
1: I will, sorry, by telling a story to sort of illustrate how accessible AI technology has become prior to you know joining Google I wasn't a machine learning expert at all my academic research had been in compilers and programming languages and sort of very low level systems stuff so when I got to Google I had the opportunity to work on this project in the ads technology systems that required me to do a whole bunch of machine learning. When I started work on this project, I spent a very long time, you know, probably a couple of months sitting down and, like reading a bunch of like very complicated, daunting graduate level textbooks on statistical machine learning and, you know, going through stacks of papers and sort of coming up a very steep learning curve. You know, I'm not really sure whether I would have been able to even come up the steep learning curve in 2 months had it not been for the years and years of training and you know mathematics and computer science that I'd had uh, going to school for so many years and then I spent 6 months writing a whole bunch of like super complicated code to solve this problem and like it was a hard problem at the time and it had a huge amount of business impact the team that built all of this stuff won a founders award at Google which was you know big deal at the time and you know we fast forward 16 years years to today. And this thing that I did because of open source software and cloud computing platforms and all of the knowledge and training tools that are available to anyone for free online, I think that a motivated high school student could have done that entire project in a couple of days. And so to me, that is just an enormously exciting thing because the more accessible these tools are, the more people in any community anywhere are going to be able to pick them up and go solve problems that only they can imagine. We as a society are smarter together than we are as individuals. It's just impossible, I think, to see all of the problems worth solving if you are one human being or one collection of human beings sort of sitting in one geographic place, sort of thinking about your part of the world. A real highlight of this phenomenon to me was when I went with Steve Case and J.D. Vance on this Rise of the Rest tour that they do every year. I went with them to Memphis. And in Memphis, I saw all of these entrepreneurs who were using these technologies, machine learning, drones, autonomous systems to solve a bunch of problems in agriculture. They were applying these technologies to these problems because those were the problems of their community. Entrepreneurs in that community can sort of see things that are interesting, that are valuable, important problems to go solve that I couldn't see sitting in Silicon Valley. And so, you know, I I think this is, like one of the big opportunities for rural America, people in rural places see really important problems that need solving. And I think these tools of AI are more accessible than they ever have been. You don't need to go to Silicon Valley to build a company that uses AI to solve a problem that you've identified. You and I both grew up in these places. Like the people there are as smart and ingenious and as full of initiative as folks anywhere else, like maybe more so than most other places, uh, because there's just sort of this certain scrappiness in these communities having them have access to these tools so that they can go solve their problems is going to benefit not just them, but the rest of us.
0: When you talk about rural development, you do kind of highlight a few sort of key, let's say, programmatic and policy things that need to happen to enable this potential to be fulfilled. Can you touch on those a little bit?
1: Four places get 70-ish percent of all of the VC investment. And I think what we are discovering and have discovered over the past few years is that when venture capital goes hunting for good businesses and good entrepreneurs and other parts of the country, like there are good returns to be had. So I, I think there's a role for government to play in incenting some of that investment uh, just to get things rolling. I don't think that this is about doing some non-market thing to get investment. I'm thinking it, it's it's just create enough of a steamrolling, effect so that we can get momentum and the investment into those communities you know after which we will absolutely see the returns and the, and the benefits. There are some prosaic things that we have to fix as well which are you know just critically important in order for these communities to be able to connect with their digital future like they actually have to be able to connect to the internet, it's really important for kids because all of this wonderful, Body of knowledge and education, these resources that will help you learn the skills that you need to have in order to, you know, have the jobs of the future, you know, and to, yeah, you know, be an effective entrepreneur are all available online. So, like, kids have to be able to connect to the internet, and you know, communities have to be able to connect as well. Like, you can't run a modern technology-heavy business when your business and your employees don't have great broadband connectivity. And we, we definitely have a broadband deficit in the rural parts of the country. We have tens of millions of people who don't have broadband connectivity and it is heavily biased towards the rural parts of the country. There's also some education things that we have to do that is partly about curriculum and like partly about just making sure that role models exist for kids. I don't know what the dynamic was in your community, but the three businesses that were big in my community when I was growing up were tobacco farming, furniture manufacturing and textiles. And when you looked around you and you saw who had good jobs and who had opportunities, it were people who had work in those three industries, like look at those people as role models and say, yeah, that's what I want to do when I grow up. There's no reason whatsoever that a rural kid can't have a beautiful career in technology and increasingly like a beautiful career in technology where they don't have to leave their community and their family. But like we need to do a better job showing kids how.
0: One of the things we've been excited about in Virginia is that Microsoft has been a leader here in rural development. I believe the biggest or certainly one of the biggest data center complexes in the world of Microsoft is in Southern Virginia. We've had a very long and, and very positive relationship with Microsoft in the Commonwealth of Virginia. I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about that Microsoft's presence in, in Southern Virginia.
1: We have a really big data center in Boyton, Virginia, in Mecklenburg County. It's really fascinating. It's one of the most sophisticated pieces of technology anywhere on the planet. We've created hundreds of very high-skilled jobs in the Boynton. And data center in operations. And, you know, one of the interesting things that I think you see, and this is you know, certainly something you're probably even more familiar with than I am, given that your job is economic development, is these high-skill, high-wage jobs have a network effect inside of the communities that they're in. They produce more jobs than just the jobs themselves. So there is this really great book I would encourage everyone to read by a Berkeley economist Enrico Moretti called The New Geography of Jobs. And like he describes this effect very well. Now, Moretti, the interesting thing, like that book is a little bit pessimistic. Pessimistic about the future prospects of rural America, like far more pessimistic than I am. But like I, he does accurately describe this phenomenon, where an engineering job in this Boyden data center is probably going to produce. Three, four, five other jobs just in terms of the economic halo effect that it produces as sort of have these high wage earners in, in these communities. And so I think mindset wise, and this is sometimes the thing that we get wrapped around the axle on is that the thing that sometimes I think we want to have come back is like the big furniture manufacturing facility and you know, the big textile plants that were in Campbell County I think it's you know, it is sort of challenging for those businesses to come back with the very gigantic number of jobs that they had in these twentieth century manufacturing lines. But the thing that can come back are like these small community like Boydton can have a big job creator like the data center that then results in this gravitational field that attracts technical people into the area that results in more auxiliary businesses creating that have their own jobs. And like, this is one of the things that I talk about in the book is that it is easier now than it ever has been to create businesses that can serve global customers anywhere. I've My- Favorite example from the book was one of my childhood friends is a manager at this company that does precision plastics machining in Brookneal, Virginia. And like that business is very successful because they're able to use the internet to market to their customers, which are all over the country, to communicate to them, to collaborate with them on the work that they're doing together. They then use a bunch of very sophisticated manufacturing equipment that is highly automated to do a whole bunch of like really sophisticated work that employs high wage skilled workers and then they're able to like use the logistics systems that we've built in the United States to get the work delivered to you know the customer wherever they happen to be. And so it's just fantastic. Like I, I don't know that you could imagine starting a small business like that in a town like Brook Neal twenty years ago, whereas it's entirely right. possible that think about that now. And like, that's exciting.
0: Absolutely. By the way, you mentioned Enrico Moretti. I don't know if you're aware of this, Kevin, but when he, and by the way, I'm also a fan of his work. I've been involved in economic development for a long time. And I would say his book that you referenced, The New Geography of Jobs, is probably my favorite single thing that I've read related to economic development. And we actually engaged Moretti to be an advisor to Virginia a few years ago when we were working on our new strategic plan for economic development in the Commonwealth. And we had actually had, had wrapped up that plan just as the Amazon uh, HQ2 RFP came in, and our bid in Virginia was based largely on Moretti's ideas. So when you look at the Virginia Tech Innovation Campus, this you know $1.1 billion statewide investment in computer science education in, in almost every college university, almost every public college university in Virginia, plus the community colleges, plus the K-12 settings, it was inspired in large part by his notion of the multiplier effects in the tech sector, the power yep. of... Sort of the talent pipeline and so forth. Anyway, just, I just wanted to share with you, I thought you might be interested in, in the impact that that had on our state. There was a passage in your book, I think it was either in the last chapter or maybe second to last. I just want to read it and, and have you comment on it a little bit, if, if you would. You said, this was sort of a, a big idea that you had that I thought was really compelling. You said, whether it's healthcare or a combination of healthcare and other grand challenges, we already possess the mechanisms to fund an AI Apollo program. You had sort of... Comp- compared it to John F. Kennedy's speech many years ago. All we need to do is summon the will to do it, and the results could be nothing short of extraordinary. Can you elaborate a little bit on what your vision is there, what it would cost, and what you think the potential outcomes would be for economic competitiveness and growth and opportunity in the U.S.? I think
1: that that we do have a real opportunity here to focus our investment In a way that not just solves a really important problem for the people of the United States and like the citizens of the world, but gives us an opportunity to solve that problem in a way that gives us a set of infrastructure that we can then use to build an economy on that will help us prosper well into the 21st century. And so the reason I mentioned the Apollo program is we did not need to go to the moon. In a sense, getting to the moon was an arbitrary thing. But the beautiful thing about the Apollo program is that it created this single galvanizing vision for what human innovation could accomplish and you know this big, hairy, audacious goal that we could collectively go after. The goal itself is a little bit arbitrary, but like the things that we needed to go do to accomplish the goal, the mission, were very, very, very strategic. Basically, our modern aerospace industry is born out of the space race and the Apollo program and the investment. That we made in going to the moon. We actually could do something even better than the Apollo program right now because we have a bunch of very important problems that we could go solve. My favorite one is healthcare. You know, I talked about it in the book and I I, you know had no idea that COVID nineteen was coming. The fact that we need to like have a major, major investment in infrastructure required to help us quickly tackle global health threats like COVID-19 as well as just get fundamentally better than we are right now at delivering high-quality health care at scale to every single person who needs it. You know, it's one of those you know, zero sum problems right now where unless we have technological interventions, we're gonna just be trapped in this terrible situation where we're arguing about who gets access to what. We could very well obliterate the constraints that we're operating under right now and be able to like solve healthcare in a sense. Like that could be our moonshot. But like there are others that we could go after as well. Like climate change is another interesting one where in order to sort of turn this from a zero-sum problem right now, which I think is going to be almost intractable to solve through political or policy means. Like we're going to need to invent a whole bunch of technology that can make our carbon emissions much lower through more efficient production and consumption of energy, as well as a whole bunch of new technologies that we're going to have to develop to get carbon out of the atmosphere. AI is like a very, very important component in solving those problems as well. You could pick your moon here, And like what I know for sure is that like going after either of those moonshots, like you solve a big important problem for society, but you also produce an entire ecosystem that is probably going to produce even more economic benefit than the military industrial aerospace construct was that came out of the space race.
0: Looking back on your career development and what you see as opportunities in the future, what advice would you give to, you know, folks who are in high school, folks who are in college as they look to position themselves for a technology career? Well, I
1: think to the extent that each individual can, like you should try to be as broadly curious as you're able the interesting thing about a technology career whether it's in software engineering or you know narrowly in machine learning or it's in mechanical engineering things are changing so quickly that your career is not about learning a fixed set of things, and then capitalizing on what you've learned for you know four decades. It's about this constant process of learning, of being curious about what's next and what's possible, and being open to learning from others and availing yourself of all of the information, which is more available now than it ever has been before. You don't have to go read the World Book Encyclopedia now to get yourself informed about something Like you can go to YouTube and watch videos and it's what I do every day. Like I, I try to learn something new every day and it's like, you know, the past year, just to give you an example, this this is not a high tech thing at all, but I've taught myself to be a machinist, not a good machinist, but like I've I've taught myself to be a machinist. Like I can operate a, you know, an engine lathe now and like, I I know how to use my Bridgeport mill, uh, which I am uh, in the process of lovingly restoring. And like, I've learned a ton about CNC machines meaning 100% of that I've learned from watching a whole bunch of stuff on YouTube and then finding ways to practice. So like, I think that's the thing that I'd say to any kid or like anyone who's looking to further their career is like, go learn something and find a way to practice what you've learned. It's very easy to feel intimidated by something that's complicated, sort of feel like an imposter or to look at other people and think that they are able to more easily grasp this thing than you are. And to convince yourself, oh, I don't have the talent for this. And there are things I know that I don't have talent for. Like I, I could never shoot three point shots like Steph Curry can. Like I, at least I'm pretty sure I can't. <laughs> but like there A whole bunch of things that for instance this machining stuff. Like I convinced myself early in my career that like the mechanical engineers were like some special breed of creature that you know had had brains that could understand the mechanical world in a way that I couldn't. And like that was just wrong. Like I just (laughs) needed to go learn some stuff and practice and like surprise myself and the folks around me by how reasonable I've become at solving mechanical problems. And so like I, I just tell everybody like don't be intimidated. You don't know that you're not good at something until you have tried. And sometimes the trying is hard. The thing that I tell my kids all the time is that nothing really worth doing is easy. And so if you wanna go really make a difference in the world, like you have to learn to do stuff that's hard. And so just don't be intimidated by that process. It's hard for everyone to learn how to do something. So yeah, I think that's my advice.
0: (laughs) That's great. I was laughing to myself because you said you ultimately studied computer science in part because you didn't know that you had that sort of mechanical engineering aptitude. I felt the same way about computer science. mechanical <laughs> engineering. Gosh, Kevin, what a pleasure this has been. I just want to end by saying thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for all you've done to advance technology and AI and what you're going to do in the future. And thank you especially for all you've done to support development in the Commonwealth of Virginia. We're really proud that you are from here and hope that we'll be able to maintain A close relationship in the years ahead.
1: This podcast has been brought to you by the Virginia Economic Development
0: Partnership. Thanks for listening.